Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good morning. This is uh, Nira Zakovich from the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, and this is the center's uh, podcast, Ethics uh, in Action. Uh, my guest this morning is uh, uh, Professor uh, Avi Loeb. Avi, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Avi is an astrophysicist uh, and the Frank B. Uh, Burr Jr. Professor of Science and former chair of the uh, Department of Astronomy at Harvard. Uh, he's also the director of the Institute for uh, Theory and Computation, the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, uh, the chair of the Breakthrough Starshot Advisory Committee, the chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy in the National Academies. He's authored um, close to 700 research articles, uh, four books, most recently um, a book that many of you uh, will have heard of, Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life uh, beyond uh, Earth, inspired by uh, his hypothesis about uh, uh, the uh, so-called the Muamua um, uh, um, visitor from uh, outside of the uh, solar system. Uh, Avi has held appointments at uh, the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, as well as in uh, the Weizmann Institute in Israel and uh, at uh, Tel Aviv University, also in Israel. Um, so uh, Avi, a great honor uh, uh, to have you here. And um, I'd like to uh, start by asking you about your uh, very exciting new project, uh, uh, the Galileo Project uh, at Harvard. If you could tell uh, me a little bit uh, what that project uh, wants to do and um, what prompted it, how you became, uh, how you became interested um, in doing that. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for having me. And um, first, I would like to mention that all the labels you, you described um, that I accumulated over the years, they're uh, not so meaningful to me because uh, I see science as the privilege of maintaining our childhood curiosity. And I pretty much haven't changed much, if you ask people that know me, uh, from the time that I was a child growing up on a farm uh, in Israel, that's what I describe in my book, uh, Extraterrestrial. Uh, and uh, in a way, the Galileo project that you just mentioned is um, a continuation of my childhood curiosity because um, we are uh, defining the goal of trying to figure out the nature of objects near Earth uh, that are not uh, understood. Uh, and that includes an object like Oumuamua that was discovered in 2017, the first visitor from outside the solar system that didn't look like any rock we have seen before within the solar system, didn't look like a comet, didn't look like an asteroid. It had some anomalies and I described them in my book, Extraterrestrial. And uh, to me, that was an indication that potentially it could be an uh, artificial object um, that was made by another civilization. Because 
in uh, September 2020, there was another uh, object discovered with similar anomalies. Uh, it was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight, it didn't have a cometary tail, and it turned out to be a rocket booster that we produced, that we launched in 1966. And we know that it was artificial, this uh, second object, and therefore uh, it illustrates that we can tell the difference between a rock and an artificial object based on the way they behave. And uh, I just put on the table the possibility that Oumuamua was artificial and perhaps as thin as uh, 2020 SO, this object from uh, September 2020. Um, and uh, there was a lot of backlash and uh, pushback from the scientific community. Uh, at the same time, uh, in, uh, the 20, on the 25th of uh, June this year, um, uh, the intelligence agencies submitted a report to Congress admitting that they are not doing their job. <laughs> there were <clears throat> 143 uh, uh, incidents where objects uh, were found uh, by multiple instruments, infrared uh, sensors, uh, optical uh, cameras, and uh, a lot of uh, pilots uh, seeing the same thing at the same time. And, uh, and those uh, objects that were identified um, uh, could not be uh, figured out. It was not clear that they are human-made. Uh, uh, it was not clear that they are natural phenomena. So the nature of these objects remains um, unclear. And uh, those intelligence agencies argue that uh, more uh, needs to be uh, studied about these objects. And these are called unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP. So in both cases, we have objects that whose nature is unclear and could be artificial in origin, could potentially uh, get here from some extraterrestrial technological origin. And therefore we define the Galileo project whose goal is to examine such objects um, with uh, telescopes. Basically, uh, rather than speculate about their nature, uh, this is not the task that should be left in the hands of politicians, national security advisors, or military personnel in Washington, D.C. Uh, this is a subject that should be dealt with uh, by scientists, by astronomers, and we're planning to uh, build uh, telescope systems that uh, will get high-resolution images of these objects and uh, potentially reveal their identity, their nature, uh, and uh, that's what the, the Galileo project is all about. And it originated from a few wealthy individuals that came to the porch of my home uh, to ask me questions about my book, uh, Extraterrestrial. And uh, they were inspired by the vision. And within a few weeks, I received the $2 million uh, in donations. And that was sufficient to fund uh, a research project. Uh, we really hope to get uh, 10 times more funds at the level of 20 million. Uh, so that we can do a comprehensive uh, study of this subject. Uh, based on our estimates, we need about 100 uh, telescope systems uh, of the type that I described. And uh, we currently have a team of 24 uh, exceptional scientists, mostly astronomers, that are working on this project, uh, and I'm leading it. Uh, and I want to follow up, Avi, on um, specifically how you intend to uh, use the telescopes in the Galileo project, but I, I, I just uh, want to ask you uh, one other question uh, first. I found it interesting 
um, that you said sort of that the uh, labels, uh, uh, you know, the kind of uh, <clears throat> different professional achievements that position you at the very heart of the establishment uh, uh, don't matter uh, and that you've kind of maintained your childhood curiosity and that's, you know, that's wonderful uh, and admirable, but, but in some way part of, you know, what's giving you this remarkable hearing that you're getting uh, uh, these days uh, are those labels, right? It is the fact that you're coming from the heart of the establishment and it's unusual, right? That, you, I mean, you're one of the preeminent astrophysicists in the country um, and um, you're taking up these questions that uh, seems like others uh, don't want to touch is that uh, and, and it's getting the hearing because of the labels is that because of the childhood curiosity is that because at some point in one's career one stops caring about what other people think what uh, what led you to this well, I should say that um, I approach uh, other topics within uh, astronomy in a very similar way. You know, I, I initiated the study of the first uh, stars in the universe uh, when only a few people around the world were, were interested in that. That is sort of the scientific version of the story of Genesis. Let there be light. And uh, when I started working on it, I remember dismissive comments being made by some colleagues and uh, afterwards, I, you know, I wrote uh, two books on the subject, and now it's a, a very uh, prosperous uh, frontier in astronomy. And actually, the James Webb Space Telescope that is expected to be launched at the end of this uh, calendar year uh, was designed for the purpose of seeing the first stars, the first galaxies. Um, so uh, here is an example where I, you know, I promoted the frontier. Uh, there wasn't uh, much. Uh, uh, of a personal attack uh, when I did that. But then I worked on other topics such as, um, you know, the, uh, for example, um, black holes, um, where I proposed ideas that were not uh, initially were dismissed and then became the hottest topics. And, um, and then I worked on um, the dark matter about on, on most of the matter in the universe and suggested some ideas that were non-conventional. And then it, again, in many instances, those discussions ended up being the hottest things in the field, even though they were dismissed early on. And so as a result, I adapted the approach uh, based on experience that I shouldn't pay too much attention to um, the audience. I should keep my eyes on the ball, so to speak. And I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter, uh, even though I should say that um, we have quite a few anyway. <laughs> yeah, so actually there was um, uh, my attention was uh, uh, alerted to a, a tweet that said uh, by, by someone that said who said that uh, his wife uh, has a crash on uh, Avilo uh, <laughs> uh, after seeing him uh, on TV on, on many occasions. And I mentioned it to my wife. Uh, because she said uh, in the tweet, she said that uh, I, I'm a much uh, sexier version of uh, Anthony pa Fauci. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and um, when I mentioned it to my wife, she said um, uh, Fauci is not uh, is, is actually a low bar. Uh, so, you know, she wasn't very impressed. Uh, but um, uh, irrespective, I don't really have any um, account on social media. I don't care too much about it. And um, what I'm really uh, motivated by is the significance of, of these questions. But uh, the point is that 
I applied exactly the same approach in the context of Oumuamua, this weird object that was discovered in 2017. And I suggested that it may be artificial. I didn't expect much uh, the backlash. There wasn't any press release associated with the scientific paper that I wrote on the subject. And then uh, there was a huge response to that. And that surprised me because I believe that this subject belongs to the mainstream. I frankly believe that the, the public is extremely interested in that, and I have the proof for that. My book became bestseller in many countries, translated to 25 languages. I had almost 1,200 interviews over the past seven months. That's since the book appeared. That's yeah. quite remarkable. And if the public cares about it and the public funds science, this should be a subject that scientists work on. But instead, the scientific community pushes back and doesn't uh, ridicules it and and argues that uh, it needs extraordinary evidence before even contemplating a discussion on it and my point is that this evidence will never be collected if you're not funding the search so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy on the one hand to require extraordinary evidence at the same time not to fund such a search and i should say that there was a search for dark matter for four decades we haven't found the particles that make up most of the matter in the universe but that was um, Legitimate, that was part of the mainstream. We were searching in the dark. Now, why would it be, uh, why would there be a stigma or, or a pushback on the search for something like us? We exist. We know that the conditions uh, that we find on Earth are replicated in tens of billions of planets in the Milky Way galaxy because half of the Sun like stars. Uh, have a planet the size of the Earth, uh, roughly at the same separation, based on the latest data from the Kepler satellite. So it's completely natural for us to say, okay, if circumstances are replicated so many times, if most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun, there must have been something like us that predated us. And therefore, we send out spacecraft in the form of Voyager, New Horizon. They may have sent spacecraft. They may have sent them. Uh, artificial intelligence systems that uh, could have replicated themselves with, with 3D printers and could have, within a billion years, could have filled up the Milky Way galaxy uh, so that we can find them in any habitable planet uh, in the Milky Way galaxy, including the Earth. So why should we assume that we are alone, that we are the smartest in the, in the universe? Why not just check, have a reality check and look through our telescopes for the answers? You know, otherwise we would be just like the philosophers during the days of Galileo who claimed that they know that the sun moves around the earth. They know that we are at the center of the universe. Therefore, they didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope and they put him in house arrest so that nobody would listen to him. Uh, we don't want to repeat that mistake. That's why we established the Galileo project called After Galileo. And uh, I was frankly surprised and um, quite frustrated by the response of the scientific community to this subject, which was different, quite different, qualitatively different than the response to other innovative ideas that I proposed in other parts of astronomy. And, um, you know, I would, uh, of course, surrender to any evidence that demonstrates, for example, that Oumuamua is a natural rock. But all the proposals that were made, scientific proposals, were of objects we've never seen before, like a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, or a, a cloud of dust particles. These are things we've never seen before, and each of them has a problem. And um, of course, if we had a high resolution image, then it would settle the issue, because we can tell the difference between a rock and uh, 
an artificial object with a high resolution image. And a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I wouldn't need to write the book if I had a high resolution photograph. And that's what I'm aiming to get with the Galileo project. And you know, the experience is similar to uh, showing a, a cell phone to a caveman. You know, the caveman who is used to playing with rocks all of his life would assume the cell phone is a shiny rock. But that's just like the beginning of a learning experience. If the caveman would push a button and record his voice and then push another button and record his image, he would recognize that this is not a rock. Yeah. I mean, in some way, we still uh, are those cavemen conceptually in the sense that, you know, we kind of uh, make hypotheses based on what we can imagine. So we assume that, you know, maybe uh, there were uh, expeditions powered by artificial intelligence with 3D printers because, you know, that's on the horizon of our imagination or that the only kind of evidence that is relevant is photographic evidence because that's again the kind of evidence that we're used to um so it, you know it's not clear whether we can sort of completely get away uh, from that predicament but let me ask you uh, specifically about the use of the telescopes uh in the galileo project uh you know i know that this will go through uh stages as the funding increases um but is the idea to have sort of uh, fixed telescopes at strategic points is the idea if you could have the sort of 20 million rather than the 2 million or the 100 million rather than the 2 million uh, dollar support is the idea to at some point develop some kind of uh, uh, rapid response uh, uh, deployment. So, you know, one thinks, for example, if there is a massive event somewhere like, you know, the, a massive sighting of UAPs in Arizona somewhere, uh, would you want to be uh, able to deploy your telescopes there rather than keep, keep them on some sort of mountain tops so that you could um, uh, follow a developing story or is that? Yeah, so the, that's an excellent uh, question. So what we plan to do is first develop um, a telescope system, meaning one system that has multiple telescopes uh, and the reason we need multiple telescopes is in order to separate them so that we can see the object from different directions and therefore figure out the three-dimensional motion of the object. Uh, but also we will have telescopes that observe reflection of sunlight in the visible uh, band and, and then also look at it uh, in the infrared so we can see it at night uh, and uh, with radar systems. Uh, and um, also have a big enough telescope within the system such that we can get a high resolution image. A telescope with a diameter of one meter can resolve the head of a pin on a, an object the size of a person at a distance of a mile. And that would allow us to tell the difference between a label that reads made in China and a label that reads made on exoplanet X. Uh, and uh, of course, if it's human made, it's very boring for me, as boring as seeing a bird fly above the telescope. Um, I'm not a zoologist. I'm sure that there are zoologists that would be very interested in the bird. Uh, I know that there the must be residents of uh, Washington DC that would be interested in a label that says made in China. But for me, it's as boring as a bird. 
uh, anything human made. And I would gladly put in the software the uh, automatic transfer of data on any object that looks like it's human made uh, or uh, uh, natural. Uh, what we are looking for is something else. And I should say, you know, the UAP reports of the past may be a mixed bag. Perhaps most of them have mundane explanations, but it's sufficient to have one object which looks weird, that, which uh, based on all the data looks as if it's a technological product of another civilization for it to have a major impact on society. And that's what we are looking for. It's a fishing expedition. We are uh, throwing our hooks in the form of telescopes and then looking what kind of fish we would catch. And um, so that's one telescope system that I mentioned. And as you correctly asked, uh, we need more than one. We need to place a, a lot of telescope systems. That's why we need more funding. Uh, so the the funding that I mentioned, the, the requirement is to have at least 100 telescope systems of the type that I described so that we can place them in many locations and in, improve our chances of seeing something based on the reported rate of UAP um, in the report to Congress. And 100 telescope systems will give us enough coverage of the sky to enable detections within a year. Um, so where to put the telescopes is another matter. There was some discussion about clustering of events around the strategic uh, sites, such as nuclear plants or military sites. And uh, as long as we are allowed by law to put the telescope in some locations, we will think about uh, where to put them. And we haven't selected yet the locations. It will depend on how many systems we have. But um, of course, mountaintops, as you mentioned, they are the best locations because uh, the atmosphere is more rarefied there and the, there is less blurring of the images. Uh, you can look farther towards the horizon. That's why astronomical telescopes are located there. You might ask, why don't astronomers see UAP? And the answer is, if a bird flies above an, a telescope, uh, astronomers ignore it. Uh, we will focus on the bird. We will track it. So the data that comes through the telescopes will go into a camera that feeds it into computer systems that they will uh, advise the, the telescope whether to track the object of interest or not uh, based, based on uh, the algorithm that we put into it to, to identify um, the objects. And of course, we will have to train. It may be an AI system. We'll have to train it to uh, figure out if the object is a, is a bird, a drone, an airplane, in which case it's not so interesting compared to something else. Yeah. Uh, Avi, from uh, uh, reading uh, some of your work and listening to uh, some of the interviews uh, that you've given, um, you know, it's clear that you're deeply, you know, for uh, what might, one might call uh, uh, philosophical reasons, uh, interested in the um, possibility of both answering this question and potentially uh, learning what we can if there is anybody uh, uh, to learn from. Uh, I guess one question um, inspired uh, by your uh, uh, colleague from uh, uh, CUNY, uh, Professor uh, Michio Kaku, the uh, theoretical physics professor at CUNY is, um, isn't there a kind of uh, profound risk averse argument uh, 
against um, against looking for this stuff, or at least against making uh, wanting to be uh, in contact. I mean, the kind of point that he makes, uh, I think, has to do with you know, it's not too late to uh, stop sending you know television signals, uh, etc., uh, uh, into space. Given that uh, you know, we if there is anyone out there, we know nothing about their intentions. It seems like a sort of game theoretical calculation would uh, prompt you to be uh, uh, very careful. What is there to uh, uh, suggest to us that we would mean anything to uh, uh, these kind of entities? Again, I realize that's not the stage the Galileo project is in. I realize that's a derivative uh, uh, question. Uh, but I'm just asking based on the kind of excitement that I detect uh, uh, in a lot of uh, the work, why not assume that the paradigm is essentially going to be, you know, that the risk is similar to the risk posed to the natives in America by the Spanish conquistadors, either, you know, will be seen as insignificant or we would contract uh, 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 a variety of viral infections that we can't deal with and that either way it would be a bad idea. Well, definitely, when you uh, walk in the wilderness, uh, you better be quiet and listen, because there might be predators out there. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, we were not uh, that quiet. We transmitted the radio waves for 126 uh, years since Marconi uh, transmitted the first message. And uh, these uh, signals propagated a distance of 126 light years. And I recently had a paper with my student, uh, Amir Siraj, where we asked uh, how likely it is that we will hear a response in the near future. And the conclusion was that um, it will probably take millennia before we hear a response, if not a millions of years. If they use uh, chemical rockets to get back to us, it will take millions of years. If they use uh, um, signals at the speed of light, it may take millennia. Um, but um, so for the near future, we might be safe, but in the long term, we might hear back from them. Um, the, the, what the Galileo project is trying to do is the right thing. We, you know, the first thing you want to know is the reality that you live in. So you don't want to shut your eyes and not look around or not to look through the windows because uh, that will not get rid of your neighbors. You want to know whether you have a smarter kid on your block. Uh, you know, it's a reality check. And the science is about uh, improving our knowledge that is evidence-based rather than relying on our prejudice and ignoring reality. Of course, you know, we could have uh, behaved just like animals and uh, uh, stayed ignorant about our environment. That's what the dinosaurs did. You know, they were dominant relative to any other animal on earth. And then, and so they had the, uh, they, they were very proud of the size of their body and they thought that they're in full control. But then 66 million years ago, a giant rock the size of uh, Manhattan Island uh, tarnished their ego trip. And the lesson from that is it's better to build telescopes and look at the sky and see if there is any giant rock approaching Earth and perhaps try to deflect it. That's what we are doing. As, astronomers now, that's what the telescope that discovered the Muamua was doing. It, it was built for the purpose of finding rocks that may, in, uh, may impact the uh, Earth. And 
so-called the near-Earth ob objects. And that's how, in, in the process of doing that, the, the telescope discovered Oumuamua. Um, so uh, my point is, uh, knowing about the reality we live in is always good. That's the purpose of science. And uh, uh, collecting data is always to our benefit because we get a better assessment about uh, on the conditions we live in so that we can act uh, appropriately. Uh, ignoring the reality we live in could lead to a catastrophe, just like in the case of the dinosaurs. So uh, we don't want the neighbor to knock on our door without us expecting it, um, because who knows what will happen after that. So uh, we want, and also it will change our perspective, you know, our, our aspirations for space, uh, the way we treat each other. If we knew that there is a smarter kid on the block, it would change everything for us. So let's try and figure out whether we are alone or not by looking for through our telescopes for any evidence. And uh, what the Galileo project is doing is uh, passively uh, looking around, not actively. So suppose we, uh, one of the UAP is uh, an AI system that was manufactured by another civilization. The first step is just to see what it's doing, okay? To try and uh, infer its intention based on uh, the kind of data that it uh, collects, the, the kind of data that it's seeking. Um, and then uh, there is a question of if we do something, how does it respond to it? Okay, so that's another phase that we can go through once we identify such a system uh, to see how it responds to us. And finally, there is this question of whether to engage with it. Uh, that will be the third phase. And of course, it will be a great challenge to figure out uh, the intention of such a system. For that, we may need to use our own uh, AI systems to figure out their AI systems. It's sort of like relying on our kids to interpret content that we find in the internet because they're more computer savvy. Uh, but um, I think the first phase which the Galileo project is engaged in is to passively uh, look around and see what we, we find. Mm -hmm. Why, why did you, um, in the first stage, why did you uh, opt for a passive rather than active approach, especially given that a lot of UAP reports have been from um, aviators? So yeah, because um, you never know uh, what the intent, uh, what the intention is of, of, of these objects. So uh, I think it's more prudent to first figure out what uh, you know what oh, no. uh, passively what they're yeah. doing I, I, then, I guess, yeah, yeah. I, I guess what i mean uh by passive versus active is different in the sense of um why not uh, opt for an approach that uh wants to mount cameras on uh, uh aircraft or uh, uh you know uh private spacecraft uh or, or, or what have you, or something that uh, can deploy to uh, uh, areas of sighting. Is this, is this a kind of assumption about uh, what counts as um, evidence? Yeah, so it has to do with the fact that science is done through experiments where you have full control over the instruments you're using. So you cannot write a scientific paper based on eyewitness testimonies. Right. Uh, there's no scientific paper that in the abstract says, this person told me that, and I'm now explaining it. You know, that, that's not part of a physics paper. You can't do that. You have to rely on instruments that provide the quantitative measurements, okay? And the second thing is the instruments must be under full control. You can't use 
a, a camera in a jittery cockpit of a fighter jet. You know, that, that is not under full control and you don't know whether the images vibrate because of the jitter in the cockpit or the actual objects doing maneuvers. And what we want is to have full control over the instruments. Therefore, first of all, we want to build our own instruments. So once again, I, I come back to this idea that we are acting just like a kid because when an adult tells a kid, you know, this is uh, the truth. The kid refuses to believe the adult. The kid wants to find the truth for himself or herself by experiencing it. That's why kids get bruised very often. And so the Galileo team just wants to get its own data. You know, we want to get new data. Science is about reproducibility of results. Uh, we cannot just believe in miracles that happen one, one time and they will never repeat. The science is about their the ability to see the same thing happening again and again under similar circumstances. So we will look at the sky. If these objects are there, we would see them. And then we would collect data from instruments that we have full control over. The data will be open to the public uh, and the analysis will be transparent. I don't want to look at the classified data because that would limit my ability to function as a free scientist. Uh, and uh, we want to get high quality data, better than the fuzzy images that were released to the public in the past. So in a way we're injecting scientific rigor into the discussion on this subject. And the reason it, it didn't exist before the Galileo project is because the scientists were ridiculing the subject. And yet at the same time, the most conservative organization that you know about, which is the government, uh, is now talking about it uh, seriously. And, you know, former CIA directors, Brennan and Woolsey, former President Barack Obama were saying, this is a serious matter. So how is it possible that a conservative organization like the government talks about it seriously while the scientists continue to ridicule it? That, that's unacceptable. So I'm trying to change the culture and bring in uh, scientific rigor into the discussion and so that we can rely on open data and everyone could analyze that data that we will collect. Yeah, <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you uh, actually a follow-up about uh, um, uh, government's changing uh, attitude uh, to this, certainly part of what is you know, prompting uh, this newfound uh, and wider spread uh, interest is the uh, uh, report uh, to Congress of the uh, intelligence agencies where they say that they can't explain uh, the vast majority and that's based on the New York Times reporting from 2017 so there's definitely a sea change you know if there's uh, you know a senior uh, Harvard astrophysicist like yourself and the New York Times and like there's a sort of convergence of uh, from all uh, uh, parts of the establishment on a question that used to be sort of extra establishment uh, 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 topic. Um, that said, then, sort of in the spirit uh, of science and, uh, um, uh, you know, relying on the good old uh, Occam's razor, the government uh, does have a history of disinformation uh, and dismissiveness uh, about this. So part of what, you know, sort of uh, uh, prompts the whole uh, Roswell mythology is the government, you know, sort of playing a, a bait and switch and trying to uh, distract from the uh, high altitude balloons that they were uh, building at the time about the Russians. And they were happy to spread misinformation about 
UFOs uh, because they thought that that was less damaging than the Russians finding out about uh, their spying balloons. And a similar variation on that story happened with the U-2 spy aircrafts and so on and so forth. Um, so how seriously should we uh, take the government's explanations? Yeah, so that, that's why I, I don't want to rely on the government. I don't want to look at classified data. The decision point for me was whether it's sufficiently intriguing for us to engage in it, you see. And, uh, you know, given the uh, report that came from Congress to Congress and given the uh, unusual properties of Oumuamua, I decided to establish the Galileo project so we can uh, shed some light on, on, on this subject, scientific light. And, uh, you know, I, was, I didn't have an agenda to start with before 2017. It's just that this object Oumuamua showed up and it had weird properties. And I, um, I, I will only surrender to evidence that indicates that it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before, like some of my colleagues are claiming. And uh, my point is, if we collect more data, more evidence of, on objects like it that will come in the future, and uh, also on UAP, we should be able to figure out what they are. And uh, that's what we should do. It's our task as scientists, uh, because the public is very interested and the public funds science. And, you know, rather than uh, uh, consider the multiverse, extra dimensions, topics that resemble, uh, you know, how, uh, the question of how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin, that, that many scientists work on because they want to demonstrate that they are smart, they do mathematical gymnastics, impress each other, they get awards, honors, and so forth. Uh, but that doesn't carry much weight outside of academia, even though we can convince ourselves within academia that it's what mer you know, it merits our attention to talk about the multiverse. You know, we don't have any experimental evidence for that. So uh, my point is the public cares about a question, the government cares about a question, and the science is here to serve the public uh, and, and clear it up because the stakes are very high if we do find evidence it would have huge implications uh, for the future of humanity. Just to give you an example, um, it will change uh, the way we perceive our place in the universe. It will change our religious and philosophical beliefs. If you look at human history, most of it was driven by some people trying to feel superior relative to other people. Just think about the Second World War where the Nazi regime uh, was driven by racism, basically trying to feel superior relative to other people. And as a result of that war, 75 million people were killed. That was 3% of the world population, uh, which 3% um, of the world population, which is much more, an order of magnitude more than uh, the uh, death toll of the COVID-19 virus so far. Um, and the... You know, if we did find evidence for another civilization that is far more advanced than we are, it all the differences, uh, the genetic differences between us uh, would become insignificant, laughable, and uh, it would change our perspective, you know, that we should all feel uh, as uh, equal members of the human species and uh, work together. And the way I define an intelligent civilization is a civilization that follows the guiding principles of science, uh, which are cooperation and the um, sharing of evidence-based knowledge. And so the two elements here are cooperation 
<laughs> that you don't very often find in politics these days, and evidence-based knowledge, which you also don't find very often in politics. So uh, we still have a way to go before we will de be defined as an intelligent species. And uh, one of the reasons I look for intelligence in space is because I don't often find it in human history. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it, it sounds like that. I, I have to say, you know, in some ways, you're more, much more optimistic than I am about um, how we would respond if we did find uh, uh, that kind of evidence. Uh, you know, there's, there's historical evidence that um, world historic kind of events don't necessarily always bring us together. Um, there's that wonderful uh, novel that you may know, uh, Neville shoots uh, on the beach, and you know one of the conclusions there, or you know one of the themes that come across there is that even as we're becoming aware of uh, impeding, uh, impending uh, uh, nuclear Armageddon, people continue to be the same kind of jerks that they've always been. Uh, so that you know there might be an intractability there that um, uh, would not necessarily yield to this. It's yeah, also I should say that that um, you know that we will deserve that because uh, based on Darwinian selection, um, only the fittest uh, survive. You know, and we might not be the fittest if, yeah. we, if we behave that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, certainly, it just you know this discussion uh, seems to point to there needs to be a completely uh, a separate preparation for the, as you say, religious, social, psychological implication uh, of this kind of finding, which in itself is probably not a scientific or maybe it's a social scientific uh, uh, project. Um, probably that also explains, you know, what you were talking about earlier, the, the existential stakes here are much higher uh, than in uh, uh, understanding dark matter and uh, the missing uh, parts of dark matter. And um, I, I, to follow up, though, I, I did want to ask you, um, talking about social science for a minute, uh, how interested are you in uh, social scientific uh, evidence about part of this stuff? Uh, for example, some of the evidence that says that uh, uh, sightings and reports of uh, UAPs increase with political trauma in the aftermath of war, after uh, uh, great diseases like we're going through now. Um, does that matter for the kind of uh, uh, investigation that you're doing? Um, you know, I think the question that we are addressing, whether we are the smartest kid on the block, is much bigger than all of that. And um, you know, um, if you look at human history, humans are driven uh, many times uh, by the desire to, to leave uh, something behind. You know, we live for a short time. And, uh, you know, if you go through the halls of uh, academia, you find uh, a lot of uh, statues and, and um, uh, paintings of uh, former administrators, university presidents, deans, and so forth, that wanted to live a physical replica of their uh, the way they looked like, uh, as if that would outlast them in a way. And you find it, of course, in, in many other places, um, uh, because people are not happy with just leaving behind their DNA through their children, which is what nature gives you. Nature gives you this privilege of 
maintaining longevity of your DNA by having children. But people want to leave behind some extra meaning uh, that they found throughout their life. And, you know, cave people, cave dwellers used to paint the walls of the cave and leave behind something that they've learned through their life. And that's why we leave monuments. But my point is, you know, within a billion years, the sun will burn up all of the monuments we produce because it will boil off the oceans on earth. There wouldn't be any, and geological activity would basically um, destroy all the caves on which paintings were made. Nothing will be left the, the way we think about it. All of our wishes for longevity will sort of be tarnished at that point within a billion years from now. If you really want to leave something behind, there is a simple recipe for that. And that is to create artificial intelligence systems that are sent into space, to interstellar space. Uh, because in principle, you can train such a system to carry your blueprint, your guiding principles, sort of like training your kid uh, how to behave in life. And you send it to the world and then it behaves autonomously based on learning from experience. And that's what AI systems do. And so right now we are using AI systems to drive cars. We might use them for, to make uh, medical decisions uh, uh, and, and other decisions in the future. But I think the best monument we can have for ourselves is that each of us will have its own avatar an AI system that it sends into space that carries with it our flame of consciousness. And such a system, since it's made of electronics, could survive a billion years or more. It could outlast the sun. And so that's the right way of building a monument. Just to give you an example of some false uh, approaches that people took in the past, there was the golden record sent with the Voyager that included songs like the Beatles or things that we are proud of, some cultural treasures. Now, think about it. Why would the extraterrestrials care about such things? You know, we might look to them as primitive as ants are on a sidewalk. You know, why would they <laughs> be proud of us? Then there was this um, uh, presumptuous uh, idea of sending uh, the ashes of Clyde Tombow that, that discovered Pluto on the New Horizons spacecraft. So they put a fraction of his ashes on the spacecraft, and that spacecraft is making its way out of the solar system. Now, what are ashes? Just think about it. They are burned up DNA. There, we, when, when you burn a person, you are destroying all the information in the DNA. So we burned up the DNA of that person, Clyde Tamba, and put that uh, information-less uh, content on a spacecraft makes zero sense. If you wanted to maintain some memory of Clyde Tombaugh, what you want to send is an electronic record of his DNA, right? So you want to actually take the DNA rather than burn it in ashes, put that imprint on a record, an electronic record on the spacecraft. That would be the scientific approach that NASA should have taken or put a frozen stem cell on it. That's the intelligent approach. But instead, we put some ashes of cloud. So if an extraterrestrial finds it, like who cares? Uh, so just to show you the way we behave, and then you have Richard Branson and, uh, and Jeff Bezos using their wealth 
to lift their body by 1% of the earth radius and being very proud of that. And my point is showing off in space is an oxymoron. You know, lifting your body by 1% is nothing to be proud of 1% of the earth radius uh, because the size of the observable universe is 10 to the power 19 times the earth radius. It's huge. So how can you show off by lifting your body by 1%? So once again, you know, humans do not have the right perspective as of now. Uh, and we better accommodate to that. And the best way to approach it is if you want to leave something behind, let us develop AI systems that we send into space in our image. You know, just like it, religions used to say that humans are created in God's image. AI systems are created in our image. I, I mean, I guess they will be one day. Right now, they can't necessarily cross the street safely. I mean, I guess most of us can't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but it's a, it's a really interesting hypothesis. I mean, basically, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying we are most likely to see some kind of technological remnant of another civilization and given organic uh, limitations that technological uh, remnant is likely to be something similar to what we call an ai system here because it can uh, either carry the information or learn or uh, in some ways reproduce uh, uh, itself and that not only is that what we're likely to encounter if we encounter anything that our best chance of understanding it is looking forward uh, with again a fast learning uh, uh, AI system. Yeah. So that is. And, and just, just to complement what you said, the, the reason I say that is because biological creatures, you know, like ourselves, were selected by Darwinian evolution to survive on the surface of Earth. We can't really make a long, a long journey between stars, right? So uh, it's much more likely that our first contact would, would be with a technological piece of equipment that that is autonomous, doesn't wait for the guidelines from the sender because the distances are so vast and is, uh, uh, is potentially more uh, smarter than we are. That's fascinating. Uh, Avi, I know I need to uh, let you go, but I wanted to thank you uh, very, very much for spending some time uh, with me on the podcast and wish you um, lots of good luck with the project. Thank you so much. And I'll be glad to come back if we see something. That would be awesome. I'd love that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.